Has anyone else had a really bad headache this week? Boy, my head is hurting. No, it's not because I've recently had my second AZ dose. My left hemisphere is hurting from statistical overload. My right hemisphere is hurting from a condition you've probably not heard of before. No, it's not CVST. This is IIPASTCGPARIR, or better known as IPAST GP area. This is, of course, a rarer and more serious form of the IPAS-GP, which stands for the Information-Induced Patient Anxiety and Subsequent Telephone Contact with GP, a condition which, of course, we're all very familiar with for many, many years. But this adds on the extra twist at the end. Area, of course, standing for A&E referral inevitably resulting. This difficult, difficult syndrome does not just affect general practitioners uh, and general practice clinicians. No, um, this has now also started to affect hospital doctors, particularly those based in accident emergency departments. Management of this condition is quite tricky. It usually involves a prolonged telephone conversation with a patient followed by a tetchy prolonged conversation with an A&E specialist um, followed by a sense of general disappointment and two paracetamol. For resistant cases, the Royal College of Radiologists initially recommended that every single person gets a head scan, although that recommendation has been subsequently removed and been replaced by the addition of two ibuprofen or one glass of wine. Just when you thought things couldn't get any more crazy, this is still the COVID pandemic. It's Friday, the 16th of April, and this is the Hot Topics podcast. Hello everybody, it's Neil Tucker here from the MB Medical team with our latest Hot Topics podcast. Just when you thought things were going to be quiet for Easter, just when you thought that we were getting COVID under control, not a hope in hell. I wasn't going to do the podcast today, I was going to be doing it next week, but there was so much to talk about. Plus I realised that next Friday I'm actually presenting our long COVID course bit of a plug in case you fancy joining us Friday morning for our live long COVID course or indeed join us on the Saturday for our live spring hot topics course. Basically I realised everything pointed towards doing a podcast today. So what have we got to talk about? Well let's talk about headaches, AZ vaccines and cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on it because there's been a lot published in the last week and I think it's been at the forefront of most of our minds over the past week or two whilst we've been working. And actually because of the furore around CVST and the AZ vaccine, it has overshadowed some other important pieces of research and recommendations that have come out over the last week, particularly to do with the principal trial which is similar to the STOIC trial I was talking about last time, looking at inhaled budesonide for mild COVID, and the MHRA have made some recommendations based on the preprint. Also, we'll have a quick look at a BMJ paper on uh, organ dysfunction in patients after hospital admission for COVID and rates of post-COVID syndrome. Okay, let's start with headaches. Big headache for us. I'm sure if you've been duty doctor this week or you've been doing out of hours shifts, this will have been the burden of your work. Four cases per million AZ vaccines given. 
that's what we're dealing with. It is the epitome of the needle in the haystack problem for general practice. The reality is so many people get headaches. So many people get headaches after they've just had a vaccination, which often induces side effects, particularly in the younger population. General practice and A&E departments have taken the brunt of the uncertainty and anxiety here. We don't really understand the mechanism of what's going on here. Something about the immune response provoked by the AZ vaccine. And uh, it should be said, although we haven't introduced that over here yet, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is the remarkably effective single-shot vaccine, which is being rolled out around the USA at the moment, and I dare say some other countries of the world, that has also been linked with a handful of cases. It's speculated that the immune response that the vaccines are driving obviously leads to antibody production. Some people, those antibodies seem to bind to platelet cell surfaces, uh, resulting in aggregation of platelets, uh, a relative thrombocytopenia and disordered clotting and thrombosis where it shouldn't be happening. The number of cases is small. So this is 79 that has been reported uh, in the UK. That's out of 20 million plus vaccinations given. 44 of those were cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. 35 of them were thrombosis in other major veins, including the splanchnic veins. Now, I haven't thought of those for a very long time, not since I was doing some revision for a surgical exam that I, on reflection, don't really know why I was bothering doing. Thrombosis in your splanchnic veins could result in abdominal pain, but never once in my 10 plus years of being a GP now have I seen a single person with abdominal pain where I thought to myself, hmm, well, this could be splanchnic vein occlusion, I suspect. All right, house, the rest of us were going for it's a virus. Anyway, I digress. Clearly, the number of cases is very small, slightly more common in women than men and probably slightly more likely to kill you if you're a younger person rather than an older person. It would be great if diagnosis was clinical and straightforward, but that is far from the case. Most of us will have never seen a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis in our careers. They are normally very, very rare. I won't go into all the details now, but Simon Curtis, my boss at NB, has done a very, very good blog on the ways in which it may present. Go on the nbmedical.com website and on the home page under the blog tab, you'll find it there. So, of course, it causes intracranial pressure increase. And so you may well get symptoms and signs that you would expect with that. So progressive headache visual changes, tiredness, nausea, a postural component, focal neurology as well. But as is so often the way, patients may not have any of these. Head is, headache is extremely common, present in probably 90% of people. It may be the only feature and they may have nothing else. And it may not fit into that neat box of what you would expect with raised intracranial pressure. Focal neurology occurs in about 40% of patients, so the absence is not reassuring. All of the cases that have been reported have been linked with thrombocytopenia, and it's also been found that they usually have very raised D-dimers. So it's the investigations above and beyond the clinical findings which are the most important component of ruling this in or ruling this out. So national recommendations 
suggests that patients need a full blood count, a clotting screen and D-dimers where there's any suspicion and that this needs to be done in a rapid fashion. So it really means that we can't effectively assess this in primary care. We certainly can't exclude it. Of course, this ultimately means that the pressure is transferred from us up to accident emergency departments. Lots of those have taken to making their own protocols. I've seen a few that uh, do lots of tests and I've seen some that just do a full blood count and if their platelet levels are okay then in their minds they've effectively ruled it out. I think it's probably important for us to remember that there's a lot of talk about CVST at the moment but let's not forget that there's a range of different thrombosis that could happen so it could be a PE, it could be this splanchnic vein occlusion could be any other major vessel in the body to be honest so we just need to keep an open mind we need to be aware of what vaccination they've had and when we need to be aware about their other risk factors for thrombosis keep in mind new headache new neurological features but also shortness of breath abdominal pain um, petechiae and where there's any doubt investigate further Meanwhile, the ethicists have been having a field day with all of this. I mean, on the face of it, even though these risks have been raised, on a population level, the risk of getting COVID will still do you more harm than the risk of any rare adverse event from the vaccination to prevent COVID. So to most of us, it would still seem like a no-brainer that everyone should go and have the vaccine. Of course, if you're young, you might not see it that way because if you are young, then your chance of being seriously ill with COVID is very, very small. And actually, it brings the risks versus the benefits much more onto parity. Hence why now otherwise fit under 30 year olds are going to be offered an alternative where an alternative is available. But it's going to be interesting to see what all of this has done to vaccine uptake, uptake rates for the second doses and for younger people who are due for their first ones as well. On an individual level, if you're younger, I think actually it's quite a rational thought to be questioning whether the benefits are going to outweigh the risks for you. The complex bit comes on a population scale when we're trying to reduce transmission and we're trying to protect each other through herd immunity of course, it still makes sense to have every single person vaccinated, including the kids. How many parents are going to want their child to have an AZ vaccine? Perhaps not many at the moment, I suspect. And of course, there's been continued questions about whether the vaccine just prevents serious illness or whether it can truly reduce transmission as well. Perhaps we now have the first data suggesting that transmission rates are substantially reduced through vaccination and this was a paper published uh, by the um, CDC from the US. They found that two doses of either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines reduced transmission by 90%. So in fact what they were really looking at was the rates of prevented infection which actually means that the rates of transmission blocking may be even higher if there was a reduction in viral shedding in those patients who ultimately do still become infected. Although whether that actually happens is, uh, is still a big question. Nevertheless, it serves as a reminder about what we're trying to potentially achieve through a vaccination programme when all we've been hearing about in the news from the last couple of weeks is the negatives. 
Now, one really big positive to come out in the last few days is the preprint results of the principal trial. On the last podcast, we talked about the STOIC trial, which is now published formally in the Lancet Respiratory. I'll put the link in the description. And you'll remember that this showed that the use of inhaled budesonide within the first few days of developing COVID versus usual care dramatically reduced the need for emergency care in those patients. The limitation of the STOIC study was small numbers. And so that's where the principal study steps in. So this is a trial that's been running since the start of the pandemic. It's been looking at various different treatments or possible treatments for people who are managing their COVID within the community and might hopefully help stop needing them to go to hospital because things get worse. Late last year, they added inhaled budesonide to the list of treatments that they would compare against usual care. They've been collecting data throughout the second wave and they've now got a much larger study population than the STOIC trial. So 751 patients taking budesonide versus just over a thousand in the usual care groups. Just like stoic, budesonide was given at a high dose, so 800 micrograms twice a day, and they took that for 14 days. There was two primary endpoints. So the first was self-reported recovery, and this was three days shorter on average. The second primary endpoint was rate of hospitalizations, and here there did appear to be a decrease. So 8.5% of participants receiving the active treatment were hospitalized or died versus 10.3% in the usual care groups. So about a 2% difference. However, this uh, finding didn't reach statistical significance. And despite its size, the trial is just a bit underpowered to provide clarity on that. However, this is just an interim analysis and uh, there is some more data that's still going to be generated out of this over the next few months. So watch this space. Off the back of this and the STOIC trial, the MHRA has made a recommendation that whilst we shouldn't be using inhaled budesonide as a standard care, it can be considered off-label on a case-by-case basis for symptomatic COVID-19 positive patients. Now, the rub here is that the principal trial was always aimed at older people, so they were recruiting um, patients 65 plus or age 50 with associated significant comorbidities. The STOIC trial, meanwhile, had a generally younger population, but the MHRA has only made this recommendation for this older cohort following the principal study participants. Of course, we're all individual practitioners. It may be that if you have someone who's younger, symptomatic in the community with COVID that you decide inhaled budesonide might be something you want to prescribe but currently as it stands it's only the older cohort who the establishment will have our back for. Nevertheless this is still more good news for our community-based patients with COVID. It is a genuine treatment option that may modify the disease process that may improve their outcomes both in the short and long term. And I think we should be very, very positive about this. More studies looking at the role of inhaled corticosteroids are underway. Probably they're going to be publishing fairly soon as well. 
if these confirm the positive results, it may well be that we are then given more freedom in a wider age range of patients. Okay, last paper of the day, and this was a BMJ retrospective cohort study published a week or so ago on post-COVID syndrome in individuals admitted to hospital. And I raise this because there's still clearly a lot that we don't know about long COVID or post-COVID syndrome as, uh, as it's officially known. But we've all got patients who have got enduring problems thanks to COVID. This paper does not provide us answers as to why or indeed what to do about it, but it does just highlight the scale of the problem. So this is data from almost 50,000 patients, mean age 65, just over half of them uh, were male, who had been admitted to hospital because of COVID and then they were matched to other patients who had been in hospital over the last 10 years who did not have COVID. The average follow-up was for 140 days. So we're getting close to five months here, aren't we? Almost one third of patients needed readmitting. Um, over one in 10 died after discharge. And that was four to eight times greater than the, the matched control group, which it didn't go into more detail about, but does make you wonder about the risks of prolonged hypercoagulability, thrombosis, cardiac events and so forth. And then respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. That's the interesting curveball, isn't it? Um, COVID-19 driving diabetes. All of these were substantially more common in those who had COVID-19 compared with those who hadn't. And interestingly, even more so in the younger population, so under 70 and also in ethnic minority groups. So what have we learned from this? Well, firstly, it's better to never get COVID. And secondly, if we have a patient who's been admitted to hospital and then in the next few months afterwards, they get some dodgy symptoms they're phoning up about, take it seriously. There's a one in 10 chance they're going to die. And on that cheery note, if you fancy a bit of light reading, then I came across this article on a website I've not heard of before called unheard.com, which is an apolitical blog stroke opinion piece website which, with some really interesting articles. Lots of it is about politics, but this article was written by a junior doctor in England under a pseudonym talking about their experiences of the way the pandemic was dealt with in hospitals in the early stages, particularly about their concerns as healthcare professionals about giving their patients COVID and all the mistakes that were clearly being made along the way. It's not particularly cheery, so make sure you've got some Netflix comedy to put on afterwards. There are clearly some parallels with the early days of the HIV epidemic. If the Channel 4 show It's a Sin is an accurate representation of what was going on in hospitals at the time. Uh, if you haven't watched It's a Sin, it's not an easy watch, but it's a really good piece of drama. Do check it out. And perhaps one of the main lessons we can learn from this unheard article is that a combination of bravado and denial is not a safe or healthy place to be at the start of dealing with an unknown infection. I will put the link in the description for the podcast if you do fancy having a read. As ever, let me know what you thought of that. So you can email us hottopics at mbmedical.com or find us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics and of course on Facebook. I'll be back in three weeks, all being well. And hopefully by then the headache will have settled down. 
Take care. Bye-bye.